Hi, this is Claire Berlinski at the Cosmopolitan Globalist, and I'm here with Monique Kamara, and we are very, very fortunate because Dina Kapayeva is here to join us. Uh, I mentioned her really interesting article in The Atlantic, which was published about, what was it, two weeks ago now? Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> although I've I've mentioned the article before, I'm going to have Dina tell us about it and tell us tell us why she wrote the article and what's so significant about the author she described. But before we do that, Dina, I don't know anything about you, and neither do our our um, readers. Where where did you grow up? Where are you from? Uh, Clara, first of all, and Monique, thank you for having me. It's it's real pleasure to to be here with you and talk about those very important and unfortunately very painful issues that yeah. Russia causes to the world at the moment. I grew up in St. Petersburg, mm -hmm. which is, as you know, a beautiful city, um, but unfortunately, it's always in the wrong hands somehow throughout its history. Mm -hmm. uh, I, my husband, Nikolai Kopasov, who is a very prominent historian of post-Soviet memory, and uh, he published a very important book on, in Cambridge University Press, Memory Wars, Memory Laws. And I, they uh, founded together, uh, together this, our colleagues from Bard College, uh, Smolny Institute, which was the first liberal arts college in Russia and we did it Excuse me for interrupting did you know my stepsister Laura Green yes I knew uh, yeah I, I met her oh is she her, your stepsister yes yes I'm so sorry I mean we used to work together it's nice to encounter someone who remembers her <laughs> for for <laughs> listeners my my stepsister Laura tragically died of cancer um and her her project, her beloved, was the Russian program at Bard. That's, that's, wow. that's, that's, we worked together. I'm sorry, I didn't know you. you I, are, I didn't know either. Wow. I'm very, very sorry. I mean. Uh, it's, no, it's nice to, to meet someone who remembers her. How is she, her daughter doing? She's wonderful. She's doing very, very well. She's a beautiful girl, super smart, as you'd expect. Um, Very happy. She's, she's great the joy of the family that's that's very nice to hear because that was a trauma for all of us and it was so sudden and nobody could have you know expected it to happen but it's just just an appalling thing to happen to such a young woman yeah yeah well so I'm my glad my, to have met someone yeah. who knows her, or knew her. Yeah. yes she, she was she was really really very very nice person and it was great working with her very efficient you know smiling and full of joy and life really. i was living in istanbul when she was living in saint petersburg and i think i had my first inkling that something very bad was going on with putin when i asked her about I, 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 we we sort of compared notes on living in these post-imperial, slightly corrupted society, more than slightly corrupted societies. But I remember the way her face looked when I talked about Putin. She just yeah. loathed him. She just loathed him. And I think that was one of my first clues that we were dealing with something very bad. How long ago was that, Claire? It was before a lot of, before people were really cottoning onto it. Yeah. yeah. Before people were really cottoning onto it. Yeah. They were, well, so uh, to come back to your question, uh, mm -hmm. 
my husband and I, we founded this small college together. There's Leon Botstein, mm -hmm. Laura, and many other colleagues. Uh, joint, it was a joint venture between BART and St. Petersburg. Uh, and as I said, it was first liberal arts college in Russia. We did it back in 1996-7. I mean, 97 is probably the official date. Uh, and uh, we believed that, you know, something is going to be possible in this country, mm -hmm. that democracy could exist, civil society could exist, that we can educate new generation of students by introducing this completely new model that didn't exist in Russia before. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they were delusional, <laughs> unfortunately, mm -hmm. turned out. So... Uh, we have started realizing that things are going south uh, <laughs> in more than one sense. Uh, back in uh, 2000, I believe. Mm. Well, actually, 1999, they're blowing up of the Moscow apartments. That was the first. I mean, the first Chechen war was even earlier, but it sort of everybody tried to sort of consider it an accident, something that, you know, will stop and the life will continue, you know, yeah. in the democratic kind of way, which it didn't. Uh, so the blowing up of the apartments and uh, uh, Putin's grip of power in 2000 was the first sign for us that things are going very unfortunately. I believe that uh, by 2004, five, uh, it has become clear what Putinism is about. Yes. In 2006 and seven, I published several articles and a book which was called uh, Gothic Society, A Morphology of a Nightmare. Uh, I published it, of course, in Russian uh, and it had some quite some echo because uh, I called Putinism Gothic society. Uh, that was intended to mock Putinism. Uh, Monique, you have a question. Yeah, what did you see in him that, you, that alarmed you so much? Well, it was not even his personality that alarmed me. Mm. I, I hated the idea that former KGB, uh, mm. you know, spy, yeah, uh, is ruling the country, and for me, I never voted for him. Differently from you know some of my friends, I who who believed that because he was appointed by Yeltsin, you know things mm. he be different from the rest of them, which I never trusted. Uh, and uh, what alarmed me was the way how society perceived the Stalinism. Stalinist repressions. That was, I've been sort of writing on the subject since early 1990s. I felt that the way that Russian uh, zest-oriented Democrats decided not to deal this, not to work through, to use Adorno's formula, through the Russian past, to live it in the past, I think it was the biggest mistake and uh, they actually caused what, what we have today. Uh, 
Putin's restalinization of the country begins right after he took office. Mm -hmm. It was a kind of crawling under the skin, uh, but very favorite for Kremlin project. It was not completely kind of, you know, officially announced uh, memory politics, but it was a very important uh, direction of Putin's memory politics. And of course, the myth about the Second World War yeah. was the cornerstone and everybody writes now about it. So yeah. when I'm saying myth, I don't mean that people didn't suffer or that the war didn't happen. What I mean is that the way uh, Putin and his the Kremlin utilizes uh, this historical event mythologizes it completely. They use it exclusively to their political purposes. Right. And the only goal that they are using it is to promote the idea of Russian imperialism uh, mm -hmm. and also to uh, demonstrate that terrorist uh, government, that the government which ruled the country by state terror, right, like Stalin did, is a great way of achieving great goals. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, excuse me, Monique, did you have a question? Yeah, I was just wondering because yes, uh, you know, I, I agree totally. Is there anything that you see, let's say in at that time that was different from Stalin? Does he differ okay. from Stalin or is he following that path? Monique, it's a great question. Yes, and I very much disagree with those uh, colleagues of mine, researchers and scholars, who think it's kind of continuation of Stalinism. I'm also in great disagreement, and they can talk about that in more mm -hmm. detail. There's those who try to say Putin is fascist. I mean, I hate Putin with all my heart, but what his regime is different from fascism and i mm. think that it's this a little disadvantages i i sort of understand where people are coming from when they call him fascist they want to sort of criminalize him as mm. uh, fascist regime is criminalized but i think, yeah i'm sorry they want to stigmatize him yeah, yeah. it's a generic term it, it catches no everyone's attention it brings back and re, re, it's let's say very provocative and it also brings back and evokes you know what we know about fascism mm -hmm. yes absolutely but at the same time fascism is a regime which originated 100 years ago things have changed <laughs> since hitler yes. came to power considerably yeah. So I believe that it's more important to look at what is specific, as Monica asked very pro very pointedly, what is specific to Putinism, mm -hmm. rather than to say, this is Stalinism, or this is fascism, let's box it in this kind of, under those uh, uh, labels. Uh, I believe what differs Putinism from fascism is first of all it the role it and from Stalinism for this matter uh, or maybe whatever you know well, I can say what unites them first the cult of leader okay. unites yeah. them the terror unites them the idea that uh, 
uh, kind of imperial idea also unites them. But what differs them is, first of all, the role that religion plays Putinism. Mm. Uh, yeah. And I think it's it's a crucial difference. Uh, fascism had, you know, its compromises, this Catholic and Protestant churches, and we're not going to go, you know, in detail uh, about that. Uh, Stalinism was complete, you know, as French say, athe. They yes. <laughs> did, they ignored completely, sort of. For church. for our listeners who don't speak French, atheist. He was completely atheist. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no. no. Oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, but Putinism, uh, for Putinism, religion and exploitation of several, uh, even not uh, completely sort of orthodox, but sectarian dogmas is extremely important. And we can talk about that more mm. because, to my mind, uh, what sort of distinguishes Putinism is the way he uses the uh, the propaganda, the celebration of the Russian Middle Ages. You all have heard about, and I call this new medieval memory politics. You all have heard about him erecting monuments, endless. I mean, they they put up like four monuments to Ivan the Terrible, one monument for his. Uh, great uh grandfather mm -hmm. grandfather uh they continue putting monuments to the medieval warlords for example i i don't i you probably heard of this in mariupol the occupants uh turned down they're turning down the monument to their defenders of mariupol and they're putting in its place, guess what? Land, uh, no. A monument to Alexander Nevsky. Alexander Nevsky is a Russian medieval warlord of 13th century. We know really very little about him. Uh, allegedly, he won a uh, battle on ice uh, and he, uh, uh, on Chutskoye uh, Lake, so he thought was the uh, Teutonian Knights and Sweden. Mm -hmm. And so he, for Stalin, and basically, you know, the Russian, in the Russian imagination, he is kind of designed by his, his kind of mythology is created by Sergei Eisenstein, 1938 film uh, called Alexander Nevsky, in which uh, precisely Alexander Nevsky is father of his people fighting uh, their horrible vest with all its might. Forgive me for, for contradicting you or interrupting you. Um, what you're describing actually does have great continuity with European fascist regimes and especially Nazism with their appeal to a mythic Norse past and to, to, to German pagan myths. It's really, I, I don't know that this suggests a very different approach. And it's just true of every regime that's labeled fascist in some sense, the paleogenic nationalism and the... the mm -hmm. Claire, thank you. Thank you. If, if I may, Monique, yeah, yeah. 
respond to Claire. I, I expected this comment from <laughs> <laughs> and of course Nazism used mm -hmm. uh you know uh German uh medieval mythology and there is no question about it. But the goal of using it was very different. Mm -hmm. mm. Nazism and Stalinism and uh, also Italian fascism. I mean, uh, Mussolini was more kind of towards antiquity, but also used, yeah. you know, their, all everything he could pick up from, from the medieval uh, uh, Italian history. The difference is once again the goal. Uh, both Nazism and fascism, they were trying to build a completely different society, something that has never existed on earth. That was a futurist ideology yes. and it was a modernist ideology. Yes. Putinism is completely different from yeah. what their celebration, their uh, glorification of the Russian Middle Ages has a completely different social program in mind and political program. Yes, they, it's, it's imperialism. I mean, they celebrate one, uh, the terrible, because he established state terror and because they claim he was at the origins of the Russian Empire. Mm -hmm. The idea that Putin and his crowd, and I have just, you know, my book is under review, and I want to tell you in what price, <laughs> that sort of treats uh, precisely those two kind of directions of Putin's politics, memory politics or politics of history, neo-medievalism and restalinization. So Putinism is different because what they're trying to achieve, they're trying to engrave in their, or, you know, uh, in the minds of uh, Russian citizens, the idea that Russian Middle Ages is an ideal society. We need to return back to this ideal society, which is autocracy, society of states, slavery. Is, then, it, is that actually uh, said outright? We want to go back to the time of the serfs? Yes. Yes. And how do Russians feel about that? Great. Do because they think they're going to be the serfs or the masters? I'm telling them what to do. They, right? They... They presumably everyone who thinks about this uh, believes they will be the masters of some, you know, serfs from Kyrgyzia. Uh, you know, there is quite a bit of uh, Russian fiction, uh, kind of toying this this theme, starting from Vladimir Sorokin's famous uh, day of their preaching. Uh, you know, Yuri's novel is all about that. Uh, and actually, Sorokin's novel was a response to Yuri's novel, which I kind of uh, analyzed in my The Atlantic article. Uh, but there were many other uh, uh, novels, like Tatiana uh, Talstaya Kris, which is probably one of the first uh, kind of neo medieval novels that analyzes what is going on in Russia, published in 2000. Uh, the interesting thing about all those Russian utopias or dystopias is that they cannot imagine 
they cannot imagine Russian future without slavery. That's that they wow. kind of uh uh that they uh despise this idea and criticize it, or does that they are uh, like Yuriev love this idea. Uh, and I think it's a very, very important sign. I think uh, it should okay. be taken seriously. And I, um, as I, I mean, in my new book and in some of my previous articles, I analyzed this prose precisely to show that this society as a whole, and that's the goal which Putinism achieved this, its new medieval politics. Society as a whole, does it the uh, critics of Putin's regime or, you know, <laughs> the proponents, they all think about future in those terms. Yeah. I'm genuinely shocked by this, both, <clears throat> and as with reading your article, both by what you're telling me and that I didn't know this, that this is not something that's widely discussed in the West because it seems so yeah. significant. No, and it is significant. In fact, Dina, while you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, the, the whole connection with the mentality in the medieval. And it sort of tells me that it's a society like here, because I'm here in Italy, mm -hmm. a society that it is afraid or it has rejected taking responsibility for itself. So they're always looking for a strong man. They're always looking at, for someone to resolve that problem. This is why even here, we have politicians who are highly successful because this is the trigger. This is what they actually, because if you go and look at all of the propaganda that I'm seeing now around the Italian election, that's what it is. We're going to solve your problems. We're going to do this. But there's no um, sense of true responsibility, uh, of freedom in, in a certain way. So I agree totally. No, with what uh, what you're positing here, it's extremely. Uh, it goes right to the essence, no, of what we're talking about. Why are they not rebelling? Why are they more? Uh, and it so seems there's, to there's a lot of work on totalitarianism that suggested that this is part of this can be a human subroutine, you know, like from an escape from freedom. And um, but but I don't want to get too far away from the subject of the article you wrote, because I think the specifics of that are so interesting. Yeah. And I wonder if, for the people who are listening who haven't read the article, could you just summarize the argument you made? Uh, Claire, would you excuse me? Because I just cannot leave uh, uh, Monique's comment. I okay, Go ahead. <laughs> would you let me sure, comment absolutely. very briefly? Absolutely. Well, Nick, you are absolutely right. You have we see the same thing in France, the culture, uh, a country that I know better than Italy, and we lived in France mm -hmm. for several years, and also in the United States. Neo medievalism as a politics of history is widely utilized in their uh, American democracy and in the Western democracy in general. Trump is doing it all the time. I mean, if you seek, if you look at January 6th, uh, you know, cracking all the symbolism of uh, medievalism, uh, all medieval kind of ideas that are used there, Trump is using it. I mean, uh, 
European politicians, unfortunately, do use it. So what I'm going to say is, and I think it's very important, it's very important to understand that neo-medievalism is not specific to Russia. It's mm -hmm. a broad trend in politics of history. And this trend, to my mind, uh, exemplifies the very profound crisis of the Western democracy. Yeah. Is this a rejection of humanism? Excellent question. Yes, I believe that's absolutely correct. It's... And enlightenment rationality. Yeah, yes. it's all of that. It's all of that. Yeah. They just stopped at that period. And the church, obviously, no religion is part of that because religion solves that problem. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dina. That was... Yeah, that I'm... was. Yeah. Sorry for this interruption, Claire. So It's not an interruption. That... No, it's fascinating. Um, it all it all ties together anyway. Um, but I, I'd specifically like to introduce the people who are listening to the article you wrote and to the book, The Third Empire, which mm -hmm. which I had never heard of, to my embarrassment, certainly yeah, haven't read, especially because it's not published in English or French. Mm -hmm. And when I read the article, I, I, I thought I really should have known this. And perhaps you'd, you'd like to discuss it because you've read it. <laughs> Well, uh, uh, Third Empire is a utopian novel written by uh, Mikhail Yudiev. And probably, uh, let me say a couple of words about Mikhail Yudiev uh, before I summarize the content of the article, of the, of the novel. Uh, so Mikhail Yurev was someone whom Putin certainly knew because he was uh, 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 chair of uh, 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 of Duma at at um, at a certain point. I'm just blocked on there. Claire, please cut it away because I'm blocked on. If you're stuck okay. in French, and I can translate it. <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah, well, I cannot translate it even from from Russian. He he was the chair of one of the Duma, uh, chambers, chambers or something. Okay. Uh, and uh, so they certainly met this Putin. Then Putin joined their administration, uh, Yeltsin's uh, presidential administration, and also Yuriev was a successful businessman. Uh, very much linked to their Putin cronies mm -hmm. in several ways. Uh, that's the first question uh, people ask me often. Does Putin have read the novel? And the response is yes, because he knew who, who uh, Yuri was. And he certainly was influenced by this novel. I'm, I'm quite positive about that. And many Russian journalists were all the same opinion that he had told, you know, Putin and presidential administration read the, their third empire. Uh, Yuriv was also a member of a political council of the movement called Inter the International Eurasia Movement, mm. led by Alexander Dugin. Mm. <clears throat> uh, Alexander Dugin is a uh, leader of what he calls new Eurasian movement. Uh, this is an extremely aggressive, extremely uh, nationalistic uh, 
far right. I mean, you cannot go farther right than that uh, movement uh, in Russia, which has received a lot of political support. So basically, this novel, Yuri's novel, The Third Empire, is a uh, uh, fiction written to promote the new Eurasian ideas and the new Eurasian ideology. Uh, the novel begins by uh, describing all kind of uh, uh, it's it's a it's a utopian novel. It uh, uh, it's written uh, by uh, the narrator is a Latin American historian uh, who kind of describes the, the the events from the viewpoint of 2054 then everything what he describes is already happened is yeah. it he is writing a kind of a history book for uh people outside Russia to un to explain what what has happened what what is the history of this country so uh Basically, to cut it short, because this is 300 pages volume, uh, basically the book describes how Russia conquers the Europe, the United States, and how it destroys to ashes, quite intentionally, as Yurif uh, notices, uh, states like Ukraine, Poland, and Baltic countries. They just are not to exist. Uh, this is uh, done by two emperors. There's imperial conquests uh, who are the great leaders and absolutely fantastic in all possible uh, respects, fantastic uh, warriors. But the point of the book is not even all there's, you know, destruction of entire nations, uh, conquest of Europe and the United, subjugation of the United States, the main point of the novel is different. The main point of the novel is that Russia and this huge empire is run by a very special social, uh, uh, establishes a very special social order, which is called the Aprichnina. The Prishnina, as you all certainly know, and but let me clarify for for our listeners, the Prishnina was a uh, first attempt, first uh, regime of state terror established by Ivan the Terrible in the 16th century. It was one of the most brutal events in their. Uh, Terrible Russian history in general, full, full of cruelties. Krishna has been remembered by in the historical memory as the most unbelievably cruel, horrible regime. Uh, Ivan the Terrible established this regime for the only purpose, and there is a huge, of course, literature on it and huge debate. I believe the only purpose of this regime was to. Uh, create his absolute uh, unlimited power, which he did by 
killing, raping, uh, uh, destroying Russian uh, aristocracy, Russian boyars, but also by uh, killing and just terrorizing his own population. It was a regime of state terror. Uh, so in Yurev's novel, the Prishniks the, and the Prishnina, this regime, becomes what rules Russia and all the territories which it subjugates. Uh, the emperor is there, plays absolutely the same role as Ivan the Terrible play, played in history, meaning he is an absolute monarch. There is no law but his will. There is no order except for what the emperor wants. The Prishniks report only to the emperor and they elect the emperor in Europe's novel, which is different, of course, from the historical reality of the Prishnina. Uh, the Prishniks are the only political class. They are the only class which can participate in politics. They elect the emperor and at the same time, they are completely above the law. They can do whatever they want. They can kill whoever they want. And sometimes, as Yuriv says, uh, they uh, instigate some uh, revolts against this regime and kill people without even counting them. That's mm -hmm. a direct quote from, from Yuriv's novel. And this is very laudable because this is what keeps this regime going. Uh, there are two more states, clergy, which has no political power, and the rest of the society is the third state. As I said, there is there is a constitution which is written to support this law, mm -hmm. this kind of uh, social order. Uh, the third state has no political rights. Uh, on the conquered territories, uh, people have no right to choose there to live or move freely. They are basically equivalent to slaves. Uh, they cannot choose their professions. Uh, only Russians have this privilege in the third state. They can kind of move free, freely and choose what to do, kind of uh, more or less freely. The rest of people uh, do not have these privileges. Germans are treated better. And mm -hmm. Europe is very explicit about his sympathies to fascism, like many other Russian far right, mm -hmm. which is yet another reason why they are always very often put in the same kind of basket mm. uh, as, uh, as the Nazi regime. Yeah. Monica. Yeah, uh, no, what you were saying about the Germans, in fact, even I think even in Dugan's uh, philosophy, ideology, what we want to call it in the Neil, the Germans do have... It philosophy. <laughs> have, sorry? I'm saying I don't want to call it philosophy, definitely. Yeah, no, definitely not. It's on Sean. Um, the Germans do play. They, you know, in in his view, the Germans are the ones that are supposed to take over Middle Europa, and also, you know, that's sort of Moscow would take over all of the Eastern uh, Asian area, and then Germany 
on the other side. So that's why he looked favorably upon, from my reading, he looked favorably upon the um, uh, the Nazi, uh, the Ribbentrop, uh, the Ribbentrop-Stalin um, treaty that was signed, so on and so forth. And on well, at least he admits this happens. Yeah, at least <laughs> it actually happened. I'm, Dina, I'm sitting listening to this horror story, no? as we're as as you were speaking and the one question that comes to my mind is that is there anything in the novel that is of of any benefit whatsoever to the serfs to the actual people oh yes or is it just what kind of benefits do they say because you know this it's 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 horrific no, I mean, in our point of view from the West is the way we think. Can but... I make a guess? <laughs> Go ahead, Claire. Simple spiritual pleasures. That's important. Yes. Yeah. The Mastroi, <laughs> meaning that uh, extreme patriarchy, the uh, Mastroi was a, a kind of uh, Russian version of oikonomikos, how, how to run the perfect household. Mm -hmm. uh, this book was written in uh, 16th century, presumably by Sylvester to instruct Ivan the Terrible, but it's kind of debatable. Uh, the, the main idea of the Mastroi is that pater familiar, the father of the family, can do whatever he thinks best for his children. And by children, that means his wife, that means his uh, offsprings, and of course his slaves and everybody who is in the household. So the pater familiar, this father of the family, decides uh, whether his slaves have clothes, what they eat, what they do. He he can beat them. He can uh, it's uh, he can kill them. Actually, it's not kind of. Uh, uh, promoted in, in the Demastroi, but yes, if need be, of course. Mm. You know. uh, so this Demastroi idea is very central for Yuriev's novel, although he, he doesn't call it Demastroi. Uh, and we can come back uh, to this later on uh, a little bit, why he sort of tries to whitewash their preachings and distinguished them from the preachings of Ivan the Terrible. Later on, that would, I mean, later in Putin's uh, neo-medieval memory politics, that would completely wash out, disappear. Uh, so, but there there are two things for Russians and uh, in, in a lesser respect for Germans. Uh, Russians, first of all, they can move freely, which is great advantage. They can choose their profession. Uh, and they also have, and this is what Yuri believes, the greatest thing Russia brings to the entire conquered, you know, Western world. Mm. It's called Bratchina, meaning uh, that people are obliged in a community to get together at the table, drink to the point of insanity and then they get together and fight each other of course only male do this and that's the fun <laughs> sorry, that's sorry if i'm laughing but 
this is the big fun. Wow. <laughs> wow. And we're and we're astonished about what is happening today. We're astonished, you know? I think I should interject here though, for the listeners might who might not have read the article might not realize what's quite so remarkable about this book, which is that they might be thinking, well, okay, it's it's a it's a horror novel, but it's a it's a utopian. It's about the whole future from Yuri's point of view. Mm. Uh, what I found so remarkable is he wrote this in 2006. Is that correct? Yes. And he's writing it from the perspective of a narrator in 2054, who is looking back and he's explaining the chronology of how this all came to pass. Mm-hmm. His chronology from 2006 to 2022 is uncannily, eerily accurate. And one, you can't look at that without thinking, is Putin trying to enact the things that Yuri have predicted on this timeline? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Is he not influenced by the book? That's precisely the point. I mean, thank you, Claire. That's a very important point of my article. Mm-hmm. I got completely sort of distracted <laughs> from it. <laughs> the appreciation. But you're absolutely right. What is so uncanny is that everything, starting from the war of this Georgia, occupation and annexation of Crimea, war of this Ukraine, it's all there. It's all in this kind of the same chronological uh, kind of consequence, uh, sequence. Uh, as as you said, and I'm positive that Putin was influenced by this book, but this was not the only playbook of Putin. That was so, my next question. That was my next question. Sure. And I think before we before we go to that, could we just say for listeners who still wonder why is this important for them, what Yuriya predicts will happen to the United States at the end? <laughs> ah, that's that's very important. Yurif predicts that the United States will be too frightened to use nuclear weapon. And uh, they would be, actually what he predicts is, is that the Western ideology will, democratic ideology will collapse because West united against Putinism. Guys, I was still on. I, you're uh-huh. still here. Uh, Do you mean the United States will be too frightened to use nuclear weapons, or the, what I understood was the United States will be too frightened that Putin would use nuclear they, weapons? Which one? Yes. Well, uh, technically, that would be uh, his Emperor Vladimir. Right. Uh, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who who uh yes the the idea is that in front of russia's nuclear uh threat west's mm-hmm. unity will collapse right and west will be given in one country by one and actually my nightmare scenario for for what's going on at the moment is that uh putin attacks estonia grabs it and the West doesn't respond. It's my scenario. Yes, the Americans don't put boots on the ground. They just, I don't understand still why Biden did say this, and uh, you know, two weeks before before the invasion. Yeah. 
so that would be a that would technically mean that NATO as a union as a bloc will collapse, yes. and that would be a huge victory for Putin, a huge political victory which wash off will wash off completely everything which happened in Ukraine, all his you know losses, all this shameful you know campaign, everything. This is my my fear, and this is. Yeah. Precisely the scenario that Yuri describes in his novel, showing yeah. that the West is not united, that the politics of the Western democracy is not consistent, and that they finally don't want to fight for, for democracy. Yeah. Well, I guess at that point he would say, I was right all the time, right? That's the whole thing. He'll just use it, obviously, mm -hmm. to his advantage. Um, Dina, I uh, the, the my video cut out. Okay, so I don't know what no uh, you had said before. I do have a question about the audience that he wrote this in two thousand, you know, uh, the early two thousands. Mm -hmm. um, what was it a great success? Who read it? How much of an impact did it have? Even let's say in Putin's circle, you know, of of people. We know that you said he had it had an impact on Putin himself. But how about the whole war party, all of the people that surround him? Mm -hmm. I, I think it was a very impactful book. Uh, it was much discussed in the Russian media, as I said. Ah. It was also brought up in 2014, then Putin annexed Crimea by the Russian journalists who talked about this book, like, you know, Putin's playbook or, you know, mm -hmm. Putin's favorite book, they called it. Uh, Dugin and uh, his crowd popularized the book very, very widely. The interesting thing for me, from my perspective, is that they're not so much concerned about, you know, their, than they uh, popularized this book on their websites, for example, on their media. They're not so much concerned about even the imperial conquests what they are about, they they take those huge passages, their, their duty of describes the future social uh, structure of Russia, this appreciation of order, this regime of state mm -hmm. order. And uh, I, I wanted to get back to one point. Uh, Yurev's book was impactful. There, in the same year, uh, no, I'm sorry, 2000, 2000, I believe, uh, another project, Project Russia, was published, which advocates the same ideas. Mm -hmm. It's all about the Russia's conquest of the world, the West being Russia's uh, greatest enemy, and about establishing the society of a state. It doesn't speak so much about terror as Yurev's novel, but clearly terror needs to be there. And they kind of quite explicit about that. It's not sort of, doesn't speak about their preaching, but also describes the same social structure of society of the states, uh, similar to their ancient Russia, to the medieval Russia. 
And this book was also extremely impactful. Yuriev, uh, it was an anonymous project, uh, supposedly anonymous. Mm -hmm. But everybody knew that Yuriev was one of the authors of this project. And probably Dugin was also involved in it. And what I'm trying to say is that although Yuriev's novel was very well publicized and very well read by Putin, by his circle, uh, I mean, I'm not private to any kind of Kremlin digging mm -hmm. uh, thing, but uh, it's it's kind of unthinkable that he didn't read it. He did. I... Uh, but uh, the, the point I'm trying to make is that around 2005, there were a lot of similar projects coming from the Russian far right. And they bombarded Putin's administration, please, I mean, our, our listeners should remember that Putin came to power as a thief. He is a mafia guy. He didn't have an ideology. Yeah. At one point, they believed this kind of mafia circle who uh, took the power in Russia. They believed that the Russian Orthodox Church would service this ideology. But it didn't happen because Russia is a multi-confessional country. And uh, at that point, there was a kind of huge ideological vacuum. And Russian far right was very successful in promoting its ideas and its project, this Putin's administration. And so uh, Putin, uh, Putin's administration was very susceptible to several uh, new trends in, in uh, Russian church and this the Russian sectarians. Uh, that's kind of. As for Putin himself, I don't believe he has a religious bone in his body, but I think he's profoundly no. superstitious. Do you think that it's possible that, I mean, is it really possible that he is executing this plan on this timeline out of a sense that there's some destiny involved in it, that it's been written? No, no. <laughs> I really don't believe that Putin is motivated by any kind of grand design, as mm -hmm. what you suggest. Mm -hmm. I believe he's a crook. Mm -hmm. He is a, a little-minded, small-minded, mm -hmm. uh, but successful political animal. Mm -hmm. I think that what we are witnessing in Ukraine in terms and uh, uh, his kind of ideas about uh, geopolitics, they're built on his fear for losing his power. Yeah. He is not Alexander the Great, you know, let me conquer the world because I'm the greatest of all. He is not Napoleon. Let's not kind of delude ourselves. This is a little small-minded crook. Mm. And small-minded crook, uh, I believe that the war in Ukraine, that's my personal belief. I mm. mean, and I have little grounds to uh, to hold it, but I believe that he his regime is sitting on, uh, uh, you know, his regime is very, uh, they felt at least that the regime is very fragile. Mm -hmm. And they needed the conquest 
they needed the successful little wars that mm -hmm. they expected Ukraine would be to uh to hold this regime together. Right, right. There is it's extremely important for them. Remember then uh, then Crimea happened. Putin's rating popped up 20%. I mean, that was like extraordinary. This is what they expected this Ukraine. Because they feel they they are completely legitimate. They understand that if there is no major kind of threat coming from the outer world, and there is none, so we need to create it. How to create it? Go to war. I mean, this is yeah. kind of old, like, you know, history politics for, for the crooks like that. The other very important point I wanted to touch is that the politics of neo-medievalism, this history politics that Putin has been and the Kremlin has been promoted and outsourced very successfully to other kind of players in, in the country. It recreated in the Russian society the urge, the desire for, for state terror. Mm -hmm. Because the whole kind of neo-medieval politics was about one thing. Well, about several things, of course, empire, you know, society of a state, but most importantly, that state terror, their Prishina, Stalinism, give us a model how Russia should be governed. That's wow. the best way how Russia should be governed, and of course, their conquered nat nations are to be governed like that too. Okay, well, Dina, the I'm thinking of Putin. I'm thinking of Yuryev, you no, know, and uh, perhaps around. And is this also a question of a generational, uh, let's say, group of men who think all in the same way, experiences, um, let's say, coming out of the war, so on and so forth. Uh, did you find any, let's say, connections, Yuryev's background, and also similarities with, with the other, with his cohort? It's an interesting question, and yes, then you look at them. Those are kind of old men in their seventies, yeah. basically, who, you know, devastate this country. But unfortunately, I don't think it's limited to them. Then you look how the soldiers behave. Then you look at yes, you know what happens in Ukraine. I I I I I keep reading those you know articles. Oh my God, so much violence. Where does it come from? I mean, to my mind, there is the question is very easy to answer. This violence comes from the years of educating the Russian population that violence, the cult of force, is the kind of driving force in the country. Yeah, and that was picked up again, no? When he got into office, the education system itself was transformed in that way. Or maybe it wasn't trans... I don't know a lot about the education system in Russia, no, uh, but I do know that there were certain programs that were uh, initiated and then carried out. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, you are absolutely right. In <clears throat> the most kind of 
uh, noticeable of all those experiments was, of course, uh, the textbook written by Alexander Filipov. Alexander Filipov uh, is a historian by training, <clears throat> but he published nothing before he came up with the textbook, uh, which is uh, written from, you know, uh, 1945, end of the Second World War, until 2007, Putin in power, uh, which basically glorified Stalinism. And uh, there was, in the first draft, which was made public, uh, there was a phrase that's famous phrase that Stalin was an effective manager and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And that the repressions were great because they basically allowed to industrialize the country. So the slave labor of their prisoners of the Gulag was extremely useful tool to modernize Russia, build all those factories and so on and so forth. And this textbook was very important for establishing the continuity between, uh, you know, great Stalin's empire and Putin's empire. Mm -hmm. Then you read this textbook, you see a lot of Dugin's ideology in there. Wow. Dugin participated in the bits for uh, the textbook, which was very restrained, uh, you know, organized in 2007, 2006 they were not as certain of themselves and so kind of open as they are now I mean the mm -hmm. so they did those kind of formal bids uh, Dugin didn't get it but I believe that he was that Filipov is just a pen name for, for Dugin and people wow. Wow. this textbook was printed in uh 100,000, that was the first print run, and wow. distributed through the Russian schools. Uh, there have been many new textbooks since, and many uh, state initiatives uh, which regulated the Russian history education, and a lot of legislative initiatives. As you know, Russia has several memory laws which mm -hmm. uh, prosecute certain statements about the past. Uh, the most fascinating thing is that those memory laws originally, they're supposed to punish uh, statements that, for example, uh, Russian army committed crimes uh, during the Second World War. If you say that, you go to prison in Russia. But the interesting thing is that those laws are now acquiring a broader sense, and there have been cases and attempts to apply this law. For example, then people are saying that Alexander Nevsky, this medieval warlord, uh, paid tribute to the Mongols and suppressed the revolts of his citizens against Mongols because he ruled by the Mongols their rule. Uh, by the Mongols, I mean the, uh, the Mongol uh, York or the Mongol invasion uh, in Russia, which happened in uh, uh, 1237 uh, and lasted uh, for two more centuries. Yeah. You know, what I keep thinking is that if Westerners understood this culture better, we wouldn't be having stupid discussions about whether 
uh, we provoked this war by expanding NATO. Um, and yeah. I'm curious to know, do you think, can you, I'm looking for reassurance, do you think any of our policymakers are thinking at this level? Do you think anyone in the National Security Council is thinking about this? Do you think that um, people in the intelligence community are aware of this, these works of literature, these trends in Russian culture? You're shaking your head. I don't think so. I mean, uh, I I have great admiration for the uh, for their American intelligence at the moment because mm -hmm. they have predicted what happened to this very, very... Uh, they are Accurate. doing a great job, I believe, at the moment, better than any other intelligence services. Insofar as the analytical work in their White House is concerned, for example, mm -hmm. I don't believe they're aware. I don't believe they are interested. As we discussed with you before, Claire, their coverage of Russia is very packaged. I mean, there are so many, it's it's monotone. It mm -hmm. kind of covers and picks up on the same themes all the time. Yes. And it kind of, this discourse is what the politicians think, I believe. I fear that you're right. It would certainly be exactly of a piece with every other country with which we've been involved in the past 50 years, not having any deep curiosity about the culture and then being surprised that things don't go well for us. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> or not acceptable. Who can, who, can, who can tell people in a, in a position of power that they have to pay some attention to yeah, this. Please, please. Well, it's, it's also not It runs through every, every American foreign policy catastrophe. And yes. as for Europe, I don't think Europe is paying any more attention. No, no. You know what, Claire? I went through, when I was doing my master's, I went through all of the... It, what, what my premise is this is that there's a lot of bias we think that this is the way russians are or this is the way ukrainians are or this is the way italians are so on and so forth and i've read this time and again i spent uh months and months going through and i read every single a diplomatic report that came out of japan and went okay from the italians to the italian embassy uh, to the Italian authorities in Rome, okay? And they insisted with every single report, it was full of stereotypes. Japanese cannot fly planes. Oh. I found it in American um, reports as well. So a lot of times I think that cores or think they do have a certain bias. I don't know, Dina, do you find this as well or not? Well, I mean, I, I I am fascinated by what you're telling about uh, your research. I mean, I haven't done anything like that. Uh, I, it's it's a very interesting uh, topic. I mean, but it's completely closed. I mean, you cannot research what Kremlin no. does. I mean, you can only guess. It's like the Stalin. Yeah. It's a completely closed sort of circle of uh, mafia. Yeah sort of doesn't doesn't let the information out uh but but you can observe it and people have been very good in observing stalinism and deducting correct you know uh understanding of this regime i think this putinism is it's absolutely the same uh but I, think, I don't think Americans understand this. I think I, I hear constantly, but this isn't communism. The communists wanted to take over the world. 
which was well understood during the during the first Cold War. But I do not think that there's been any appreciation that we're looking at an ideology which is as ambitious in its own right, and which certainly means to leave the West in ruins. Yes. And Claire, I uh, that's I, I completely in agreement with you. For me, the biggest surprise I always have is then people continue to identify Russia as the leftist ideology, yeah. communism. I mean, it kind of, you know, makes me laugh because Putin, I mean, what there there is no socialist project in Russia any longer, not not to speak about communism. Uh Putin is a thief. It's Actually, speaking about fascism, that's that's another very important point of difference. Fascism was a regime, uh, especially German Nazism, which supposed a socialism for the Aryan race. All Germans were to be treated, you know, equally, you know, prosperous at expense of all their slaves, you know, after they would kill all the Jewish people, right? So that was a kind of socialist utopia, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Putinism is completely different. I mean, it's all about personal gain. It's all about mm-hmm. corruption. It's all about grabbing the resources of this huge country for personal uh, enrichment. There is no, and well, of course, Stalinism was also all about kind of uh socialist project at the end based on slavery uh but mm-hmm. still nevertheless putinism doesn't have this uh socialist component or you know uh, uh idea that there could be some equity be- or equality between people no mm. I think we should probably, we've been speaking for more than an hour, and we should probably wrap this up at this and call it part one, because there's so many other yeah. things I'd like to discuss, but I think we, we should give our yeah. readers a chance to digest this and come back to discuss the other questions we have, because we have a lot more on our list. Yeah. Um, this is fascinating. Too. I think it's really important, too. I think this is the, the yeah. missing part that people aren't getting, that should be that should be. I'm glad it made it to the Atlantic. I wouldn't have heard about it otherwise. Yeah. It should be, no, Claire, it, it was it brilliant. Be, it should be, it should be yeah. in the Washington Post. It should be a constant drumbeat of introduction to the culture we're dealing with and why this is so dangerous. Yeah. Yes. I I I couldn't agree more, Claire. This what you're saying. I believe there, and I fear that the. West, in general, the Western democracy, they don't realize this. how serious is this threat. They don't realize that the war in Ukraine is not a Ukrainian war. It's the war for the Western democracy. If Ukraine fails, if yeah. the Russia, uh, you know, comes out uh, as, a, as a victor in, in this war, that would be the end of the European and American democracy, sooner or later. Yeah. And they're working on it, Dina. They're working on it. They're in Ukraine, but they're also working, you know, with hybrid measures, so on and so forth, in the United States and in Europe. Well, uh, what already success four, they've already had. Well, yes. already four four governments, okay, have you no know, suffered because of this. 
Um, and we also have the American elections that are coming up, the Italian elections that are coming up. I mean, this is this is serious. And you're, you're both absolutely right. People have underestimated this and they're not paying attention. They are simply not paying attention. It's not within their grasp. They're thinking of increased gas prices. They're thinking of being uh, uncomfortable. And all too many people think, well, it's some curious war in Eastern Europe. Yeah, those people have always been fighting. Why? Why should we care? Uh, it isn't. This isn't helped at all by figures like yeah. Carlson. Who, but um, no, I, I, no, you're absolutely right. No, no, no. I'm, I mean, there's a hefty, hefty, hefty. You know what I learned? Okay, in another uh, interview that I did, that uh, with all of the conspiracy theories that get pumped out through the pipeline that go that start off in Russia and then they go on. Okay. Apparently, the largest hub of conspiracy theories and uh, disinformation. Monique. Okay. And we've been saying this. You froze, you froze, you there's froze. a lot. There's, there's, it's, the largest it's, hub is what? <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, okay. Froze. I froze. The largest hub. Uh, the largest hub of disinformation is right here in Italy. We are a special case, and it gets distributed. Claire, you're in France. That's like number two. Okay. And people are underestimating that this is okay. We have a kinetic war going on in Ukraine. There's a non-kinetic war that is going on everywhere else. You have to, right, defeat Anybody who can help Ukraine, because that's it's on two fronts and it's cheaper what they're doing with us, basically. Right. There are no body bags. Yeah, All right. There's it. just governments that fall off the face of the earth, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, I really do have to go because I, I have I got a hard exit here. Okay. But Dina, yeah, I hope so that we much. speak okay, uh, so much like sooner and then later. Claire, thank you for the invitation. This was so fascinating. And everyone must go and read this article. Um, Putin is just following the manual. You can find it in the Cosmopolitan Globalist. And I'm going to also put a link to Dina's article in my own Substack uh, with a little bit of a note. And Claire, please let me know when the uh, pod comes out so I can also promote it. I'll okay. put it up tomorrow. I'll put it up okay. tomorrow. Thank, okay. thank you, you so much. It was so enriching for me. And I mean, let's, I, let's um, coordinate on the time for the next conversation. Yes, I'd love to do that. And 